Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, what's up, ZPAC? It is Dr. Z. Welcome to the ZDog MD Show. Today's guest is Dr. Shreya Kangovi. She is the executive director of the Penn Center for Community Health Workers and an associate professor of medicine at Penn uh, back on the east side. So the reason I wanted to talk to her is she's a legend in the space of community health workers. And in a time right now where we're seeing the racial social determinants of health and the fact that we are we fail miserably to take care of our most vulnerable patients, she may have an approach that I personally have experienced through our clinic of outreach and connection and inclusion that is exactly what we need right now. I know very little about this, and so I'm the learner along with you now. And so, Dr. Kangovi, welcome to the show, Shreya. Oh, thank you so much. I feel like I could just drop the mic after that intro. Uh, very kind. <laughs> you know, I, I have tried to drop this mic, but it's an expensive mic, and then I immediately regret <laughs> it. I know, I know. Um, so how are things on, how are things in, are you in Philly? I am in Philly, and the and the smile quickly drains from my face. Yeah. Um, things are not things are not going well in Philadelphia right now, um, as as they're not going well in, in many parts of our country. This is one of the most difficult times in memory, and I remember the Rodney King period. And I mean, you combine a pandemic with this, you know, how many generations of kind of persistent injustice can we really tolerate and then be surprised when the upwelling of outrage comes? You know, I, I'm just curious, cause you're there and you take care of patients that are in these vulnerable populations. And what, how are you processing all this? What are you, how are you handling this? Yeah, well, I first wanna say that I'm certainly not the hero of this story um, actually. And, uh, I almost was uncomfortable hearing the introduction because I am a spokesperson for community health workers who uh, themselves are the heroes. Um, these are frontline uh, workers who are on all of the uh, front lines of all pandemics of injustice. You know, you mentioned, uh, you know, it's terrible to be, you know, in a pandemic and then you have this injustice, but we talk about these issues as if they're separate, you know, the COVID-19 disparities mm. and police violence and, you know, chronic disease disparities and food insecurity. And they're all just symptoms of the underlying pandemic of inequity. And so if you think about who is actually the frontline worker of that pandemic, it's community health workers. And um, we're going to spend a long time talking about who these amazing individuals are, um, why most of your listeners have never heard of them, and why we're not 
um, paying them or scaling up this workforce in the United States. But that's really what this is all about. That's funny. You just answered three of the main questions that I had uh, in, in terms of what you're going to talk about. So that's perfect. And so let, let's frame this a little more because I'm curious because, you know, I have always experienced as a doctor that that your zip code uh, matters more than almost anything else in terms of what how you're going to get care, how sick you're going to be, the number of chronic diseases you're going to have, your disposition and how comfortable I am sending you home and these sort of things. And yet I've always felt powerless at all to influence that until we started our clinic and we had our own health coaches, which are our kind of version of a community health worker, but but it's very different, I think, I'm going to speculate. And what I found is, oh, you can actually connect with people in a way that they have not been connected with, they haven't been heard. And do you so the problem of chronic inequity leading to health disparities is the one you're ultimately trying to address with community health workers or was there any other sort of inciting motive to do that no uh it was about inequity and injustice Mm. (laughs) and that's what gets me out of bed in the morning and i think that was the motivation again you know uh, different um folks have different uh attachments to the symptoms of this inequity and there are different opportunities. So, you know, COVID-19 is the symptom of inequity that has most gripped our attention in our nation right now. Um, but, you know, the, the, again, the fundamental threat is inequity. I think the best way to kind of drill down here is just to sort of get back to your question of what, what does it feel like in Philadelphia right now? And, and I'll answer that question um, just from, from the standpoint of, of, a, of, a, of a patient. So imagine that you're um, a woman named Maggie, a 43-year-old um, who lives in West Philadelphia. Let's say that you work in retail and that you're supporting your family. Uh, that includes, you know, an aging mom, a teenage son. And so maybe you lost hours um, because of the pandemic and all the shutdown and you're barely making ends meet. Your landlord is breathing down your neck. And in the midst of all of this, you know, your asthma is flaring up. But, uh, you know, your doctor has kind of switched to telehealth. And you don't have internet, you don't have a smartphone, so you kind of got lost behind and you're digitally stranded in that. And then, you know, when you do get to work, you sort of have to get pushed around by your 22-year-old white manager. And you're worried about whether your son is going to get stopped by the police on his way home from school. Mm. And then on top of that, let's pretend that you get a call from a contact tracer saying, guess what? You've been exposed to COVID. Mm. And then (laughs) Mm. somebody steps on a black man's neck for eight and a half minutes, um, and you have to watch that. That's where we are right now. And you know, um, my team. You know, I, I lead. Um, privileged, honestly, to lead this amazing team um, of sixty individuals, most of whom are community health workers. They are, by definition, at the epicenter of this. Um, they uh, are people who share life experience with individuals like Maggie. They've been there. You know, they kind of share a similar cultural background, a socioeconomic, educational background. They know what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck or survive community violence or face discrimination. And, and they're really um, feeling it right now. Wow, there's so, there's so much there. And I want to... I, you know, I want to I want to ask this question. So, as a physician, say, let's just say it's you and this population, or you and Maggie. It seems to me like 
assuming you don't come from that community, assuming you come from a very different background, whether it's a certain degree of privilege or whether it's a different kind of of, uh, environment where your struggles were different, but they were acute, it seems to me it'd be really hard to even put yourself in the shoes of Maggie. Because the way you walked me through it just now, like I got, you could feel the emotional punch when you said, and then you see an officer, a white officer with a foot on the neck, and you have to watch that. And I think so many people cannot put themselves in the shoes of the person experiencing chronic, repeated injustice, some of which is even generational, like their grandparents are telling you stories, and then their parents are telling stories, and then they're experiencing it. It's this chronic stress and cortisol. So it seems to me that it would be very hard to be able to be everything, be the high level physician, do all the medicine stuff and be the person who can connect on that level. Or am I missing something there? Is the community health worker the person that fills that, that, that bridge? Yeah, uh, they, they really are. Um, and you know, you talked about being a physician and feeling powerless when you see folks like Maggie walk into your exam room. And I think that is because we as physicians are in a system, you know, and this is no surprise, that is, that is not designed for Maggie. It's not an accident. It's not that you can't address social determinants of health. It's not that you can't help folks like Maggie. It's that we haven't wanted to, mm. and we've pointed our system this way. And, and part of pointing the system that way is hiring more and more people like us. Um, you know, we <laughs> we like to hire doctors and nurses and social workers and, and people with, you know, fancy letters behind their name. And um, unfortunately, in health and in healthcare, um, you know, solutions are often designed by and for privileged people. It doesn't mean that we're all bad people. It doesn't mean that we can't have deep empathy. I mean, I love my patients. Like, I love them more than I love my kids some days, you know, <laughs> because I I feel, I just feel them. And I know a lot of primary care doctors out there um, feel that. So I don't want to, you know, undermine or, or, or belittle the, you know, the sacred bond that you have as a primary care doc with your patient. That is special. However, I do think if we take a step back and look at sort of the structural inequity in how the healthcare system is set up, um, it, we know that the people who work in the healthcare system do not look like the people who are getting sick the most often. And thus, there is this mismatch where we um, do not have actually the lived experience and the lived expertise of what it means to go through situations like what Maggie has is, is going through. Um, and that, do, that does matter, you know? And, and so if you sort of decouple, you know, uh, take a step back and just, Forget about the way healthcare is set up right now. And you think about just, and this is actually what we did a decade ago when we, I started my work. We just went out in the streets and on porches and bedsides and shelters. And we asked people like Maggie, what makes it hard for you to stay healthy? And what should we be doing to help? You actually talked and asked and listened. Heaven forbid. That's right. And, and what's critical, I think, you know, uh, is that I, 
also I, I hired a community member, um, a, a, an amazing woman who's still my partner every day, Tamala Carter, um, who was born and raised in Southwest Philadelphia. And, you know, she's just a natural listener. Like she gets on the bus and, and people tell her their stories. So she actually uh, did a lot of the talking. You know, I helped her kind of design, you know, the interview guides and analyze the data. Um, but I stayed in my little nerdy lane and she was the one who was kind of talking to her, um, her peers about these things. And, you know, first off, we heard, <clears throat> of course, back then, you know, folks weren't calling it the social determinants of health as much um, in, in the mainstream, even though this is an age-old concept. But that's what we heard about. You know, it's the real-life issues that make people sick. You know, people said things like, um, you know, doctors and nurses and social workers, they may mean well, but they don't know what it's like in the real world. So there is a sense of, you know, it's not the medical stuff that's making me sick. It's all of, you know, it's not necessarily just the, you know, the, the healthcare issues, but it's all of these other, you know, day-to-day -day factors. And I want someone to support me to whom I can relate. You know, it reminds me of an experience I had in medical school where we did uh, home visits at UCSF. And when you go into a patient's home and they're in their own element, in their own clothes, in their own family structure or lack thereof, it opens your eyes. You go, you know, this person that I saw in this situation, narrow slice of their life, an extremist in the hospital is not, that's not the person, that's a slice. The person is there. And I won't get to see that. And I remember having this weird sense of, uh, you know, it was almost kind of a heartbreaking thing. I'm like, you know, I don't think I'm ever gonna get to do this because if I do, uh, you know, a specialty or if I do hospital medicine, I'm not gonna get to see this. And I think, you know, with our health coaches, when we were having at Turntable Health, you know, they would go into the homes, they would get into the lives and they came from the community. And what you're describing with a community health worker, so here's my question. So the they are, it sounds to me like you're hiring them for their almost for these, they're, they're not totally intangible, but they're qualities of empathy and connection and you wanna tell them your story. And then you're probably doing some training as well, right? Because then you're saying, okay, now you're the right substrate. How do I, is that wrong? Is that what you, how you guys do this? That's exactly right. You know, so let's talk, let me kind of finish fleshing out who is a community health worker and, and let's, let's, let's then talk about what are the inputs to, to set community health workers up for the, their best work with patients. So. Um, community health workers, uh, by definition, are individuals who share life experience with the people they serve, and uh, they're described in the sociology literature as natural helpers. Mm. So they have this like innate high level of altruism. Um, we all know people like this, you know, they're just like, I, I lost my job, but I still bought groceries for my neighbor who is hard up, or, you know, I, I worked really hard this week, but on the weekends, still like volunteering at a soup kitchen. These people exist. And um, what's really remarkable is that uh, I think there's more of them in harder hit communities. That's just a hypothesis of mine. Okay, you know, so this is really interesting to me because sometimes I get a cynical pushback, including from my own mind, because if I'm being honest, I'm not that person. I'm not the nurturer, the advocate. I'm the sage, the teacher. That's my personality type. So it, it's sometimes hard to wrap your head around the fact that these amazing people exist in the world. And your speculation that they might exist in harder hit communities is almost like, is there, it's almost like an evolutionary process that they're needed. They're needed there yeah. so desperately. Like in a rich gated community, it's kind of like, do you need that advocate phenotype? Is it even something yeah. that's attra attracted there? 
you know? No, I a hundred percent agree with you. And, and so I was cynical, you know, I had my background is, you know, uh, I'm, I'm from India. And so I was always connected and interested, um, in global health coming up and I had read about community health workers, but you know, I hadn't met community health workers. Um, so I also had that question of like, is this for real? Are these like unicorn people? Is this a one-off? Like what, what the hell is this about? And then you just meet these people. Like I just got a call from one of my community health worker colleagues, a woman named Mary White. And let me tell you, I mean, our, our, like our communities are devastated right now. Mm-hmm. You know, first of all, um, with everything that happened with the George Floyd murder, people are like, really re-traumatized from a lot of old wounds. Like, you know, people in my team got beat up by the cops when they were eight years old or, Mm. you know, have been in like racist experiences where they were like shot at for no reason. And this, so it's opening up a lot of old wounds, practically speaking. um, There's, you know, there's, I think this, uh, there's been a lot of property, you know, um, that people, uh, you know, rely on, um, that has been disrupted. I don't blame the looters just to be very upfront about that because, um, that's, that might be a separate conversation, but, um, you know, the reality is that pharmacies are torn up, you know, um, grocery stores are, are torn up. So people like my team is struggling to figure out like what to do because they actually live in the epicenter of that. You know, you can hear helicopters still going on overhead. There's sirens, there's fire. Like this is a terrible time. Hmm. But I just get this call from Mary who's like, you know, I saw you at team meeting yesterday because we have this Zoom team meeting. She's like, you were checking up on other people, but I just wanted to call you and say, are you okay? You know, how's Rob? How are the babies? Like, do you need anything? I can drop stuff off for you. I mean, that, see that, that, that to me, and again, because, because I'm this pretty cynical, you know, sage type, I, it's, it's so amazing to me that those people, those people exist that that type of, and, and it's, and, and again, because it's, there's the need there. What, what's interesting to me, and I was, and this is off topic, but kind of not really. I, I, I see, cause I, I meditate quite a bit. I'm, my parents are also from India and uh, you know, I get very in my own head and I get, I, I, I often can focus on that sense of separation from others that we are our own thing walled off against the world. And that then extends to tribe and race and community. And okay, we're separate from others. And what I see here is that that, that the, the fruits of what we've been sowing in terms of our separation thinking are starting to be to be harvested. And it is, it's a terrible thing. But what you're describing in your colleagues and the people that, what, what you have this humility to say, it's actually them who, who are doing this, is is the sense of no they see us as a one thing that has all these separate facets but it's one thing and that that simple reframing i i speculate might be what powers that type of person that it's a selflessness a, a trans a transcendence of self but again that's off topic but it's just a little philosophical thing i've been twisting around in my mind as i see what's happening in the country right now absolutely i mean i some of us are selfish and these people are selfless, (laughs) you know, that that's kind of just that that's, that's, that's really what it is. They're, they're both, you know, there's two things they're they're, They have been through it. They've been through some of these challenging circumstances. They earn their title by virtue often of adversity and they are the best of us. You know, they are truly selfless people. And one other thing to kind of emphasize is maybe some of us have a mental model in our head of who a community health worker is and what he or she looks like, but really 
uh, community health workers aren't just about a particular, you know, demographic or a particular disease or a particular role. This is really about holding up a mirror um, to all of our hardest hit communities all across the country and reflecting the best of us. So it might be, you know, an African-American um, woman in West Philadelphia. It, you know, it might be an undocumented um ex-factory worker in Portland, Oregon. This might be, you know, a Caucasian woman who's living in a rural community outside of um, Bristol, Tennessee. It could be somebody who's had experience with the criminal justice system. Th these are people who reflect all, you know, different uh, stripes of American society. And, um, you know, basically they harness their, you know, innate abilities of altruism, empathy, listening skills, problem solving. And, they, the, the outcomes are, I think, about not only improving public health, but uh, repairing our social fabric. Um, that's that's really what this is about. Mm, I, but I, it sounds like sprinkled us. Like I do want to get brass tacks about that, like how do you do this? Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, and listen, and you know, the funny thing is, like you and I could. I mean, I could talk about the philosophy around this and the holism of looking at social fabric and how actually we've damaged it partially through our response to COVID, which was necessary, which are shutdowns and stay at home, and we've really even further ruptured and stressed the fabric. And it's, it wasn't surprising at all to me that George Floyd uh, came out in the news say that he tested positive for COVID. Like, are, is anybody surprised in communities where it's hitting the hardest, but then we're taking young people, we're taking their jobs away, we're sell, telling them to stay home. It, it is one of the most, I can't imagine how traumatizing it is. And because as it is, your, your sense of work is your sense of self a lot of times. And so, Again, I think I want to get to the brass tacks, but it's important to kind of point that out. It, it really is. Um, Sue, I'm glad you said that again. I mean, in the story of Maggie, you know, um, you can see all of the causes of death, right? Like if you take a step back and think about what is the problem that we should be trying to solve right now in American healthcare, uh, it should be saving American lives. Um, and so then you have to ask yourself, well, what are Americans actually dying of? And it's not it's COVID, you know, it's COVID-19, like a lot of Americans are dying of COVID-19, but they're also dying, you know, the excess deaths right now are about untreated chronic disease. They're dying of, you know, financial strain. People were in a new depression and people are struggling to pay for health promoting necessities like food, housing, and medication. They're dying of stress, you know, the, the mental health effects of this everyone feels. And, you know, we already see alcohol, tobacco, and gun sales, you know, spiking, suicide rates are tracking. And then there's social isolation, you know, so there are a myriad number of, of, of causes of death that um, I think all Americans feel, but people like Maggie are feeling it most because uh, the underlying pandemic is actually of injustice. That's right. That's right. That's right. And one thing I just want to say is, I there's a lot of tis tis tisking about staying at home and you know uh, uh, sh sheltering and all of this from populations that I see online. Where I say y that's fine for us who have nice, decent sized houses <laughs> and good jobs, and we have some savings. And but how do you reconcile that with someone who that's not an option. We're talking about people's lives and livelihoods. And and then we scratch our heads and go, why is this spreading through communities of color and of poverty? And and 
why would we be scratching our heads? And what, what you know, what I love about what you do, and I, I really want to get into the details of it, is it's actually directly addressing that in a practical, but yet also quite holistic way. So it's not reductionist. It's That's not right. saying, you know, you solve this with there's a receptor here that you bind a thing to it, and it solves it solves poverty or it solves racial injustice. No, it's a it's a human problem with a complex human solution, which means you hire complex humans correctly screened and trained to do it. So teach me how that works because yeah. I think our audience would really appreciate, okay, what are the, how, what are the practicalities of that? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, so just a little bit of background. So, you know, you know who community health workers are They're you know, not just magical unicorn people. This is a bona fide uh, U.S. workforce with a Bureau of Labor classification. In the U.S., they've been around for 80 years and have been hired by community-based organizations, public health, uh, and in more recent years, healthcare organizations. And, and their job is to provide a range of social, behavioral, economic, and preventive health support. Um, they uh, are really different from, uh, you know, contact tracers or case managers or doctors or nurses or social workers for two reasons. Number one is because of who they are, right? A lot of those other roles and a lot of how we think about defining roles in healthcare is based on the training that we have. And this is probably the only role I know of that is defined other than, you know, I think that I, I'm speaking about community health workers broadly, and I think it is encompassing of um, peers or promotoras, uh, you know, community advocate uh, uh, advocates, uh, but this general workforce of community health workers, this is the only workforce that is defined by who they are and, and membership, you know, um, and the communities who are most affected by problems. So, you know, if we really want to get serious, actually, just about inclusion, this is really the way to do it. It is actually, it's about hiring these individuals. I'll pause there because it, sure. it's interesting. It's almost like you are profiling them in a way that if you profiled for any other job, it, you, it would be considered discrimination. In this case, you're saying, no, wait, we want a particular cultural uh, experience. And it doesn't even have to be the race itself. It's that cultural understanding, exactly. right? Exactly. And, and and I think it is important to highlight the kind of ethical and legal uh, implications of this, you know, uh, which you, you do not want to make this about um, just, you know, racial synchrony um, mm. or, or concordance. Um, I think it's, a that's why, you know, it's, it's about defining communities in terms of the life experience that people have. So for veterans, that's a salient life experience. And when we built out a community health worker program within the VA, you know, we're looking to hire veterans um, when we are, you know, so it's, it's about those kinds of experiences. So again, they are different because of who they are. I, I think of a lot of these other workforces almost as verbs and community health workers are a noun, um, mm. but they are also different in terms of what they do. Um, and, and here I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about impact, which is you know, the, the model that my team and I have uh, developed um, over the past decade. Um, so it's basically an evidence-based package of for, you know, how to set community health worker programs up and, and deploy community health workers. And within that impact model, um, community health workers, they don't talk at people like Maggie. Uh, they listen. Um, it sounds 
simple, but that's that's truly like what the approach is. Um, they get to know her as a person. So if I, you know, if I'm a community health worker and I'm reaching out to Maggie, who you know has just gone through all of these things that we just heard about, I don't say, "Hey, hey, Maggie, you've been exposed to COVID. You need to stay at home. And if you don't, there's a fine for that." <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't say, "You need to take your inhaler. Why haven't you been taking your inhaler?" I say, "Maggie." how are you right now? Um, I'm, I'm going to want to just help you. But before I can do that, like, let me just try to get to know you as a person. Would that be okay? Tell me about yourself. Where are you from? Where were you born? What was it like growing up? What were some of the relationships that mattered to you? What are some things that you were proud of? What's life like right now? What are your worries? You know, and what do you think, Maggie, you need in order to improve your health? I will say that question again because this is the magical question. Maggie, what do you think you need in order to improve your health? Man, you know, I would like that for my own care. Uh, that That's beautiful. That's exactly right. And so this community health worker then, are they, are they in the initial outreach to Maggie, is it a phone call? Is it, an, is it a showing up at the house? How does that work? Yeah, uh, and... <laughs> Every other era, but this past 10 weeks, it is most certainly an in-person, you know, visit. I mean, uh, that is a part of the magic. You know, there's, we hire individuals who have this radiation of natural warmth that like the minute they walk in the door, people are like, I want to tell you something, you know, um, I, I often find myself just confiding in community health workers, just in passing in the hallway that they really do have this intrinsic ability if you hire them correctly. Um, but in this era, it was really critical for us to secure this workforce and keep them safe. So we are doing all of this work telephonically right now. Um, but, you know, really amazingly, Zoom, it's, it's translated. So they have that conversation. It's still very warm. You know, I, one of my colleagues, uh, G, says, you know, I call this person like as if I'm checking up on an auntie or, you know, mm. a, you know a, a grandparent and just like, just getting to know you, just want to see if I can help in any way. It's that. You know what I speculate? And again, this is crazy, but I I bet that they know they're so innately good at this that they know how to titrate their voice and their affect, even over digital technology. Whereas a lot of us don't. Like I find Zoom very off-putting. Like if you, if you were here, Shreya, we would probably hug and be yes. in each other's face. Oh. Absolutely. And only partly because we're Indian only. Okay. I'm telling <laughs> you, but, but it's, it's partially because that's the kind of people we are and being in proximity, it, we fall right in the groove. But I suspect with your community health workers, they know how to do that on multiple modalities. So they just, they, they adapt. Is that, is that what you yeah. found? Uh, absolutely. A hundred percent. These are gifted individuals. So, mm. yeah. So, I mean, you know, they, they, they have these intrinsic qualities about who they are, but also in what they do, you know, the model is structured so that they are asking questions. Um, we've done a ton. We've, we've served directly 10,000 um, patients and we iterate these semi-structured interview guides that, you know, community health workers use to have these conversations over and over mm. and over again. And so now, you know, some of these questions are hard to ask and they're hard to get right. You know, we hear all the time about social needs screeners, and, you know, uh, uh, my face gave it away, but I have some feelings about <laughs> some of them, right? You know, I think that the intention is good, but we've all had the experience of, you know, somebody asking this question, awkwardly phrased question, like, how often are you uh, a victim of violence or something? And it's like, what? That's a weird 
that's a weird thing. Um, so, you know, the way that these questions are, are asked is important and, and the way that it's built. And so they get to know Maggie as a person and they ask the magic question, Maggie, what do you need? What do you think you need in order to improve your health and in order to improve your life? And then they do those things. Mm. That's what it means to build trust. Like you don't, you know, I sometimes read of community health workers, you know, uh, being referenced as like trusted individuals from within communities. And it, it almost makes you feel like, okay, well, it's not, somebody's just going to trust this person because of the color of their skin. That's, nobody does that. People aren't dumb, you know. People trust people because of who they are and what they do. So if Maggie says, you know, I need X, Y, Z, they're doing X, Y, Z. They are advocating with her employer. They are battling that eviction notice. They are dropping food off on the porch. And, you know, this can happen at the individual level, and this can also happen at the community level. In St. Louis, Missouri, after Ferguson, community health workers there were a critical part of the community police partnerships. Mm. And so they were riding out with officers to support victims of crime. And they were doing that in the same exact way that I just described. They're, they're not saying, oh, you know, uh, you're a victim of crime. It's probably, <laughs> you know, your fault mm. or something. And here's, here's the paperwork. They say, you know, so sorry that this happened to you right now. Um, I want to talk about how we can help with this, but also just general, you know, so tell me about you as a person. What do you think you need right now? And they're doing that. And, and in that process in St. Louis, you know, that educates the officers about what a community centered approach could look like. So, so these are just some examples, Zubin, but this is to bring you on the ground of like, this is what it looks like when community health workers interact with their, their patients. They're a catalyst for multidimensional systems change. So like you said, you're tying together now the police with the community, with the health impact, but it's not just that, it's all the other things you said, the food. And one thing you mentioned that I wanna ask about, so trauma of crime, which I think we underappreciate when we tisk 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 our population of chronic diseasers and say, you should walk more, you should get out more, you should exercise more. Yeah, you live in an area where you could be hurt or killed if you go in the wrong area or whatever it is, a lack of safety. We don't appreciate that. But then the trauma of being the victim of a crime, especially if it's a, if it's a violent crime or a sexual crime, how do the community health workers deal when someone has undergone one of those traumatic events? Do they intervene directly? How, how does that work? Um, so almost... Everyone has, unfortunately, you know, uh, trauma is another symptom of injustice. Um, so you will find it concentrated amongst disadvantaged communities who have been systematically oppressed. So the rates of trauma in, you know, for example, one of our studies where 95% of individuals had experienced a traumatic event. How do community health workers deal with that? The same way they deal with everything else. They listen and they get to know people and they ask what they want to do. it's so weird because it seems so simple and you can think about it in all of these different lenses. It could be about trauma. It could be about COVID. It could be about their diabetes. It could be about food insecurity. But the, the reason that community health workers I think are so um, both powerful, but also flexible Mm. is because they ask people, they get to know who that person is. They ask them what they need and then they pivot, Mm. you know, um, so there is this real amplification that can happen when you have this adaptable approach. So, you know, if somebody has been a victim of crime, you know, 
they may need, depending on who they are, any number of different things. And we often think, you know, trauma, linkage to behavioral health. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, we just want to tell people what to do and not listen. It's, it's part of the shorthand of, you know, first of all, our health system is staffed by people who already don't share that life experience. And then the way, you know, the who, so the who we are is a little bit off. And then the what we do is also off because we talk, we don't listen. I I, the, the, I see it recapitulated even in a lot of responses of what very well-meaning people during this difficult time saying, well, you know, we uh, in the white community should support, you know, it, 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 there's almost a paternalism and a condescension and a lack of listening. Almost? I'm sorry, yeah. there is. Now, I'm trying to be polite because I, you know, as the victim of Twitter mobs of people that have this kind of way of talking, I, I sometimes- I Get ourselves in trouble. During I, this yeah, authenticity is both a, a, a burden and a gift. <laughs> but you know, the truth is, I feel like what you, the, the system you're describing, the reason it resonated with me right away is you're listening to the people that you're trying to connect with and help. You're not paternalizing, you're not pro, you know, saying this is what we're going to do. And, and doctors are not good at that because we haven't been trained in that way. Like you said, we haven't been incentivized or paid to do that. And instead we're paid to do things to people, which means we better convince them quickly to get this thing done and, and go through it. And that's just totally backwards. And I want to get to incentives and financing of this at some point, but I, I still want to focus on because you're in that pocket of yeah. Okay, so how, how, tell me more about the community. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so here are the five secret ingredients to building a successful community health worker program. Number one, as I hope have convinced you, it's actually about hiring. You know, we obsess and anchor on training in healthcare. It starts with hiring. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's you know what we've developed in the impact model um, is basically. Uh, a, a, a set of guidelines that allow you to hire this really uh, gifted but often overlooked workforce. It starts with, um, first of all, problem definition. You know, when we did those interviews with 1,500 individuals and asked them, what do you need? We analyzed all of that and we said, okay, this is, these are the problems that make it hard for people to stay healthy. This is what solutions would look like. These are the traits that people would need in order to do these things. Mm. Does that make sense? We kind of design mapped. Yeah. And then that list includes things like, you know, listening, empathy, all of that. So then you have to go out and look for those people. So, so the next piece is knowing where to look. Mm. Um, you know, we wrote a Harvard Business Review article about this and, you know, uh, made an example of enterprise. And I, they were looking for team players. So they actually like went out and hired college athletes. Uh, similarly, if you're looking for natural helpers who share life experience with the people that they are serving, you look in soup kitchens, you look for block captains, you look for, you know, uh, 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 PTA volunteers, you look in churches, you look to find the people who are actually already spending their weekends volunteering um, or, or working. I mean, sometimes people don't have the luxury to volunteer, but, you know, they're, 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 they're doing service. And then um, you um, use multimodal assessments in your hiring. You do not overweight uh, the paper application. Uh, you're not posting these jobs on Indeed or just in this like very cryptic employment website for your hospital system because guess what? That will weed out these natural helpers who you know may not have a lot of letters behind their name. They may not have internet access. They may not be able to you know do all of this, or they might have a record. But um, you, you mm-hmm. minimize you know the barriers to entry and you enrich your applicant pool with the people that you're looking for. 
And then when you bring in the right people, uh, or, or what, when you get the applications, you what we do are meet and greets, um, where we actually just, you know, have information sessions with a large number of, of individuals. Um, and that allows us to just observe their interpersonal skills. And we're looking for the, the listener, not, not necessarily, you know, no offense to you or I, but the sage, you know, who's telling people what to do. We look for the person who's quiet and who everybody's gravitating toward. Then they come back in for, you know, very intensive, you know, rounds of interviews where we use case scenarios, you know, and we, we basically gauge, again, all of those different traits that we're looking for. Um, and then you end up with this like NFL combine approach where in the literature for community health workers, you know, which, by the way, extends back a couple hundred years, uh, turnover has been a problem. You, you can yeah. see turnover rates of like 50 to 77 percent per year. Our turnover rates are 1.7%. That's a year. amazing because even in our health coaches, there was quite a bit of turnover. And sometimes it was there wasn't a fit. Sometimes there was a team dynamic issue. Sometimes it was they were too proscriptive and they had their own ideas for their community and they didn't listen. And so we, we'd get it wrong in that screening process. But the way you've described that process is it's pretty robust and multifocal and I like that you just don't go for the CV because like you said, what if the what if the person has a record, a criminal record? That would automatically just screen them out immediately. But now you've gone through a process where you've already got the feels from them. You already see where they've come from. You 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 understand them better as a person. Then you look at this thing and go, yeah, the criminal record, you know what? This is actually an advantage now. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when you know what you're solving, I mean, yeah, we could talk about hiring the whole time, but mm. so, so that's hiring. Uh, I, I'm obsessed with it. I think it's really uh, an mm. overlooked, uh, you know, lever in healthcare. Can, can I interrupt you? I, I, I'm obsessed sure. with it too because it's the hardest, one of the hardest things, and it's the pushback I got from my clinic was, "Well, this is very human resource dependent, and we don't know how to scale this." But that's how you scale it: is you put your energy where it matters, which is picking the right people. It's it's totally scalable. Um, you, you know, human resource. It's. I don't know the reason for this, but it has gotten marginalized in a lot of um, healthcare organizations. I don't think other industries are making the same mistake. You know, mm. I think that in a lot of other sectors, people recognize. Uh, you know, Netflix. Uh, the, you know, had the, the part of their brilliance and their early success was about. Um, you know, their, their hiring strategy. Mm. Like you, this is how you build high functioning organizations. It really is about, you know, uh, what we wrote in that Harvard Business Review article is that human resources are a leadership function. You know, uh, our chief operating officer still sits in on every single community health worker interview. Um, so we don't have a lot of people who are not good fits or there's not the team culture and, and we don't have to spend time, you know, uh, uh, refilling positions. So, so, so hiring is a critical thing, but then there's, you know, the work practice. So what do they do? And, and this is where I think, look, I mean, this is about social and behavioral science and we in healthcare so often want to, you know, think about science as only biomedical science, you know, and we're just very flip about the fact that there is a science of, you know, uh, there, there are social sciences and there's generations of brilliant minds who have, you know, work through these issues of, you know, how, you know, what goes into the decision uh, that an individual may have about whether or not to pick up that cigarette. Mm. Like, what is everything that goes into that decision? Like, there are theoretical models, you know, that describe that. And, and when we built impact, we based 
we took the, the, the interviews with patients and then we layered that on to all of this existing social science theory about goal setting, about behavior change, about you know all of the social and structural inequities that are the context of all of these behaviors that drive health. And that's how we came up with the interview guide that you know Mary White, the community health worker, uses to get to know Maggie. <laughs> you know, I've become obsessed with those things. Even on my show, I talk about behavioral stuff. I talk about psychological stuff, social stuff, the way humans work on a macro level and connecting together that inner subjective truth, the fact that everyone has their own spin on truth based on what their emotional pieces and motivating behavior change is not a flipping a switch or a receptor or a reductionist approach. It's very, very different. And so this helps me understand that I'd never really connected carefully the bits where as a practitioner, when you're taking care of patients, how do you then incorporate all that knowledge and wisdom? And again, because we complain, well, oh, social science is soft science or it's irreproducible or whatever. It's like, oh, and our trials, most of the stuff we do in Western medicine isn't randomized control trial, well-designed stuff. It's, you know, observational stuff, bunch of old guys sitting around it. Sorry, let me clarify that bunch of white old guys sitting around a table who've studied a bunch of white old guys in some Nordic country and then applying it to a population that it doesn't look anything like that. So that, that's, I think that's very important just to put a point on that. So please, please continue because you're on a roll. Yeah. And so the only thing I would say there is uh, just to sexy this up even more is that we've <laughs> done three, <laughs> we've done three randomized control trials of impact actually. So you Wait. can have your cake and eat it too. <laughs> really? So impact yeah. is the program and um, you've, so tell me about, just, just real quick, tell me about those trials. Cause now I'm curious. Sure. Yeah. So, so just, I'll, I'll just be real quick and just say what are the inputs into the impact model and then how we tested it and what it does. Great. So uh, we talked about hiring. We talked about the work practice, you know, the, the, the goal setting, you know, asking Maggie, what do you need? And having a very kind of tailored approach to action planning and goal setting, all of that is part of the work practice. And then there's the infrastructure, right? Which is, you know, who is supervising community health workers and like, let's make sure we're hiring those to be the right people and giving them the kind of right systems in which to, you know, hold individuals accountable, but also provide supportive supervision. What are the caseloads? You know, where are people documenting? Like that whole kind of infrastructure, how are we keeping community health workers safe, you know, from mm. workplace hazards that can range from global pandemics to, you know, community violence, all of those kinds of pieces are often overlooked and oversimplified. And that infrastructure is critical because it enables success and it also protects this workforce. So hiring, um, you know, the work practice itself, the enabling infrastructure. And then I'll just say a couple of other pieces, which is, and these are things that have um, been sticking points, I think, for community health worker programs over the past couple hundred years. Um, the, the 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 other thing that uh, community health worker programs need to get right is the balance between the clinic mm. and the community. Mm. So, you know, historically, community health worker programs were very grassroots, um, and that had a lot of advantages, but maybe they weren't plugged in at all, you know, through no fault of their own, frankly, but mostly through the fault of healthcare organizations that, like, didn't have a clue about them. Um, they weren't plugged into what was going on in the primary care practice or on the hospital uh, wards. And so you couldn't really provide that whole person care for, an, for a patient. But now what we're seeing is actually that the pendulum has swung to the other end of the spectrum, which is that community health workers are being co-opted um, into the medical model. So even when healthcare organizations are hiring community health workers, they're not 
recognizing their true value. They're not allowing them to sort of do this type of agenda setting with patients and provide holistic, tailored, longitudinal support. They're just having them do, you know, box checking, social needs screening, or very discreet, target oriented um, work. Um, like get convince this person to get their mammogram. It's like that's. So, so get the hemoglobin A1C down. Okay, so we're going to gear these guys to click all the right boxes and do this protocol that makes sure that the target population reaches our endpoint so we can get paid or whatever it is. And that it, it's, it's heartbreaking because then people paint the community health worker or the health coach with that brush. The, the, the worst brush I've ever seen it painted with is that is the health coach that corporate wellness uses where it's a phone call and it's like, oh, are you too? fat are you kidding me like you know right. it, it's it's right. it's insane and, and what here's what here's what's beautiful and i'll you know talk about the clinical trial so so we have done it you know in, in this alternate way you know which is you know we took this leap of faith you know in the impact model you know community health workers don't really focus on a, any specific disease their job isn't to keep patients out of the hospital um, their job is to get to know people, ask them what they need and do those things. So they're literally like going bowling with people uh, in the post-COVID era. They're organizing, you know, virtual funerals. They are, um, mm. had, you know, community health workers are like advocating with um, employers that don't have enough masks and gloves. They're, you know, they're, they're just, they're, they're doing what it takes, you know, uh, and what individuals want them to be doing. Yet, and then we studied this in three separate clinical trials, this approach actually moves the needle on all of the things that we care about. Um, that we, you, know, it's, you know, by trying, by, by deliberately not wanting to check those boxes, you actually move those needles. So it's like we have found improved mental health. There have been modest but, you know, notable improvements in all of these different chronic disease metrics like A1C, smoking, body mass index, um, you know, so, and even though we're not, this isn't a, you know, diabetes educator program, this is about taking people bowling, it still moves the needle on A1C, uh, it reduces, it, you know, it doubles um, patient reported quality, so CAPS and HCAP scores, um, there was a 13% increase in access to primary care, and it reduced hospital visits by 65%. Um, and so this has a return on investment for Medicaid of $2.50 for every dollar invested. And th that's savings of $4,200 per Medicaid beneficiary within the fiscal year. And this is RCT data. This isn't pre-post data, you know, that we all know can really inflate ROI estimates. Like this is straight out of clinical trials. <sighs> so it, man, oh, Shreya. So when, when I do my talks, um, you know, I work with Rashika at Iora and they, we used a health coach model that is a, a simulacrum of this. And what we found in, in non-randomized controlled trials was improvements in A1C, improvements in mental health scores, uh, you know, 12% reduction in overall cost, 50% reduction in hospitalization, which understates what you found in your randomized control trial. You went out and did the academic work and, and are, are showing what we intuitively feel who work in that space, you and I, which is when you focus on the people and the relationship then the rest of the stuff actually happens. You don't focus on the stuff happening, right? right. And, and, and what you do and what you measure can be really different things. You know, you have to do some unpacking. You, you, can, you, you want to start with problem definition and say, okay, these are the needles that we want to move. But then you have to talk to the people who are 
doing worse by those metrics and ask them why are you know why and then what do you need and then then those metrics start to move a, a thousand percent and i think that's the basal dysfunction of what I call health 2.0, which is the measurement industrial complex. So measurement is important. Yes, you wanna know these things because they are surrogate markers of something else, but you don't play to the test. You don't You don't teach the test. You don't right. go, oh, you know what? Well, the, the, we do this and H1C numbers will get, A1C numbers will get better. No, 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 no. You fix the fundamental care model that's broken and then right. measure the measurements and go, are they getting better? They are. And That's you didn't, right. you didn't have exactly to game right. it. That's right. And so, you know, I think this brings us to, I think, where we are right now in, in, in this moment um, with this particular workforce. I hope over the course of this conversation, you know, I have convinced you that there are always going to be, you know, these flare ups of this underlying pandemic of injustice. And, mm. you know, the more and more we, um, separate them out and talk about them at a surface level instead of talking about them at the root cause level, uh, the less we'll be equipped to actually handle them. Um, I hope I've also convinced you that community health workers are not just another niche workforce. Um, rather, they are fundamentally the way that our healthcare system and our society course corrects mm -hmm. to inclusion of the people who are affected by these problems. And then I hopefully have convinced you that there is a way to do this, that it's practical. I should mention that we have developed this system and we've actually scaled it across 20 states. We are supporting a variety of different healthcare organizations and helping them you know, partner with local organizations and build capacity to get these programs right, get them off the ground quickly and get them right you know, so that they're really able to achieve the same kinds of outcomes that we've demonstrated in randomized control trials. And then we talked about how it saves taxpayers like billions of dollars if this were to be scaled out. So then you might ask the question, how many community health workers are there in America? And there's like 50,000, wah, wah, yeah. because we don't have sustainable funding. You know, we want to hire ourselves. And so we think about, you know, clinicians as doing all of this work and, you know, navigators and care coordinators and contact tracers and case managers. And there's nothing, I don't want to struggle with all of these different groups. But again, I will say that, you know, community health workers are magical because they fundamentally are not only the most qualified people to address a lot of these issues, but by hiring them, you are creating jobs in some of these hardest hit communities. This is an economic argument. This is about public health. This is about repairing social fabric. So what I am you know, just trying to beat the drum about is we need to be having this conversation a lot more because all of the pandemics that people are scrambling to try to figure out solutions to right now, whether it's COVID, whether it's you know, police violence, whether it's the, the wave of hospitalizations that you better believe me is coming down mm -hmm. the pipe from mm -hmm. all of this pent up demand, mm -hmm. you have the same solution set, or at least part of the same solution set, which is this community health worker workforce. And, um, you know, we need to really uh, make some policy changes so that we have funding. I think in the short term, that should be part of COVID response funding. In the longer term, I think there's funding that should come from Medicaid. Okay, so those are actionable things, you know, Medicaid. I think about our stimulus money that was trillions of dollars. Imagine if we just took some of that or some of the economic uh, output that, uh, that, you know, some of the intentionality 
put into that approach because it, like you said, and I, I wanna reframe it a little bit too because I've done a video about balancing the three buckets in this pandemic, the bucket of health, and we f physicians love to just focus on that. Well, everybody stay home, shut everything down, keep the yeah. ICUs empty, we'll stop it as long as we can until we get a vaccine, which may or may not ever come, and we forget the fact that our poorest and our most vulnerable can't do that, and it's gonna rage on, and we're just delaying things. Then you have bucket two, which is small businesses and businesses and the economy saying, we're our livelihood is gone, we're destroying the economy, it's never gonna come back? What are we going to do? Joblessness rates of 50% in young black men. That is that's unconscionable. And yet, but if we start opening up the economy, we're going to hurt the healthcare people. And then the third bucket, which you really kind of uh, brought home to in, in what you've said so far, which is the social fabric bucket, which we've disrupted and we've dishonored and we've you know, there's a, there's a, there's a moral um, taste bud of, of, of sanctity versus degradation. We've degraded our social fabric. And I'm not saying that like in the way, you know, some people who are very like, like, like the church lady would say, we've degraded that. No, I'm saying there is a beauty and a connection of our social fabric that we've degraded. Now we have mental illness, we have suicide, we have domestic abuse, we have alcoholism, we have substance abuse. Your approach of taking resources from the commons and saying, What's the best use of common resources? It's not to enrich corporations. It's not even to say, hey, you don't need to work, here's a bunch of money. It's to say, here are jobs. Here are jobs. Here are jobs. Employ, em employ these amazing individuals and deploy them on the front lines of all of our pandemics of injustice. And they will heal our public health. You will have restored the economy and they will reweave our social fabric. I promise you that. And, 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 you know, this is a conversation that we can't have in the long term. This has to happen right now, right now. because um, the consequences to our, you know, I, I, I am worried for the future of, of this country, as I know a lot of people are. And, you know, it, for whatever reason, I, I, I don't think that people, I'm worried that we are not going to see um, community health workers in, in all of this, you know, because even though, you know, all of this exists, like the theory is there, the science is there, the, you know, evidence is there, the playbooks are there. Why haven't we had more of these conversations? Can we see these people? You know, can we see these humble heroes in our everyday communities who don't have a lot of letters behind their name, who are often working, you know, they're underpaid or, you know, marginalized. Like, can we actually recognize that this is the solution space? I, I, I hope so. I'm encouraged. You know, I do want to um, call out that I think that there are efforts um, that are encouraging, you know, Senators Gillibrand in New York and Bennett in Colorado are working on a bill to expand funding in this space. We're in conversations with Senator Casey from my home state of Pennsylvania on policies that are specific to community health workers and, you know, um, they're funding both in the long and short term. And, and I think Medicaid is really interested in opening this up as well. Um, but it's going to take some muscle from providers, you know, and from your audience, I think, and mm. in, in making sure that we're not ball hogs, you know, and that we're bringing them into this conversation. So I, I also just want to ask you, Zubin, for a favor, which is that if there's a follow up to this podcast, I would love to introduce you to a community health worker to actually um, to speak with you directly, because I'm a, I'm a pretty bad mouthpiece for uh, these people who are better than I am. Okay, so much stuff here. Uh, first of all, you have a you have an ability in someone who has the ability himself 
to inspire and infuriate and activate. And you talking just now made me realize that when I talk about health 3.0, which is our reconnected, rehumanized emergent of the next phase of healthcare that transcends the mechanization and the reductionism of 2.0 and the paternalism of 1.0, the model that you talk about, which was partially and incompletely baked into our model. And I saw it work. I saw it work. It's so hard to, for me to convey. I don't have the words. You have to have that community health worker there telling you, this was the conversation I had with Maggie today and she opened up about this and I found out this. This is the reason she's not taking her medications is because her son's back at home and this dynamic is happening and nobody understands this. And if we put our resources and our passion, and man, this is like 2 million people in this tribe and they're healthcare people and they're activist patients. And listen, this is one important thing. They are across the political spectrum. This is not a, right. it's not a liberal thing. It's not a conservative. It's not some bleeding heart absolutely. liberal thing. This is an American no. thing. Yes, absolutely. This is an American thing. I mean, if I'm a red state governor and I'm thinking, how do I you know, put people back to work you know, how do I support my businesses? How do I make sure that the dollars that I'm putting out the door are going to be well spent? I'm all day long investing in this workforce. Like this is grassroots, you know, this is about holding up a mirror to every community. Um, and, you know, I'm inspired by your vision of a, of a healthcare 3.0. Um, what if healthcare wasn't in the box? You know, COVID has chased healthcare out of the box. Uh, right into people's homes and communities. We talk about that mostly from a technologic standpoint. You know, we think about the unleashing of healthcare as telehealth. But what if there was a workforce that actually, you know, sort of symbolized that? And what if you didn't go to a box like doctor's office and have this conversation about your hydrochlorothiazide? What if instead, when you were at the market or at your barbershop or at, you know, uh, the, the hardware store, um, there was somebody who just kind of um, met you there uh, where you were and got to know you, you know, with your permission, like this isn't big brother. This is just like, Hey, you know, let me get to know you. And, and they said like, what do you think you need in order to stay healthy or improve your life? And what if healthcare was about doing those things? And yeah, you know, if, if the thing that you happen to need right now is some titration of your insulin, they can connect you with Dr. Kangovi. That's fine. But I can't, I can't, I cannot be everything, you know, because that is, um, guess what? That is a power struggle and that is a control issue. Ah, uh, okay. So much, man, I could talk to you for five hours about this stuff and, and I will, and I will. I'm gonna force you to do this in another show for sure. Especially when we get your community health workers on the show, because that's an absolute promise of mine. We will do that. We'll figure out a way to make it seamless. Uh, the idea that we are kind of control freaks as doctors, we are reductionist and we have reduced healthcare to a transaction, not a relationship is one of the fundamental problems, I think, in how we do things. Nobody wants that. Even we don't want that. We're just conditioned. Well, some people want it. Some people want it. Th 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 there's no, you know, you, you know the thing about there's no bad system. It's the systems are designed, you know, to achieve the results they are achieving. And so this this does make sense. Because, and it's really like certain people are just crushing it off of the system. Like, let's just be very clear about yes. that. Yeah. You know, um, if you are someone who has all of these other needs met, 
And the thing that you really need is that transaction. You just really need that MRI. Yeah. Um, you just need, you want it to be at like as high uh, cost is no consideration and everything else is this, this pretty good, you know? And then if you also are the people who are uh, getting paid for all of that system works great. So, you know, if, if it all depends on what the goals are, you know, if the goals of the U S healthcare system are to make a certain segment of our population live forever, it's working. Like there is a certain segment of our population that's living like really, really long and well, you know, but it's not working for the rest of us. Um, and so I think that's where you're, you, you started out saying you felt powerless in healthcare. It's because you want to do this thing, but the whole system's pointed this way. That That's exactly correct. And the thing is there's room for all of this. So all like Tip O'Neill used to say, all politics is local, all healthcare is local. So there are different flavors and different approaches for every population in every locality, the convenience and, and I want this and I, okay, fine, you can pay for that. There's mechanisms for you to That's pay right. for it. You have yeah. the means. Yeah. Now, but for everybody else or for the populations that are the 20% that are costing the 80% of the healthcare dollars that are, you know, it's not it's not even just simply a health issue. It's an economic issue that it's an albatross around the neck of the US economy where we can't compete with other countries, which means a further wage stagnation, further inequity. And a pan- I love that term you said, these recurring pandemics of injustice in the setting of chronic injustice. It's like you have a flare, you know, that, yeah. that you throw some prednisone at, but it's gonna come back. You gotta treat the underlying cause. And, right. and you know, so the question is, what is the autologous bone marrow transplant for our system? And I think it's multifactorial, but this is a key component. But one thing I wanted to follow up on that where I was going with the powerlessness pieces, this is a solution for moral injury. So people call it burnout. Burnout's the end stage of a chronic process called moral injury, where we're serving masters that we can't reconcile. We got to make money for the corporation we work for. We got to click the boxes to not get sued. And we have to take care of this poor patient that we don't feel we have the resources to, and we're treating with a brush that doesn't paint on that canvas. And the what you're doing is saying, no, make it a team. Take the people who are really good at doing something that you're not that good at. All, not all, I'm not. Now, there are doctors that are so wonderful at it. And be as lovely as you want to be. That's great. You still get to be lovely. You still get to love on your patients, but you don't have to be the point person. That's and when I talk about the health coach model, they, the doctors come up to me and say, I don't want anyone interfering with my relationship with my patient. And it's not that. It's an addition. It's a yes and. It's a bigger than the sum of its parts. They do these blocking and tackling and connecting in a way that we don't have the time and the resources and it hurts us. But now you go, oh, they had this great conversation with the health coach and now I, okay, well, here's what we'll do. The hydrochlorothiazide, maybe let's hold off because you're gonna try some different things and they're gonna text you or call you and see how it's going and you, they're gonna look at your shopping list and see what you're kind of getting and what's affordable and where you can go. It, it's, 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 it's a total Totally different, more holistic, and more sustainable for the practitioner approach. And people don't realize that. People always ask me, I don't understand, I'm burning out, how do we build Health 3.0? You don't have any concrete answers. I'm like, there's no one concrete answer, but there is an approach. And what you've given us today is a way to say, okay, so how can we apply this to our practice, our group, our multi-specialty group, our corporate wellness you know, clinic? I bet community health workers would work in a corporation setting, wouldn't you think? Oh, I, I can't imagine a setting in which they they wouldn't work again, just because it's about holding up a mirror 
and reflecting the best of us. So whatever the pool is, you hold up that mirror and you, you know, community health workers emerge and, and they do their work. And listen, I mean, I think this is a critical piece about moral injury. We've actually um, created a, 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 a something that's a, a medical student rotation. Oh, wow. Where uh, med students are apprenticed to community health workers, right? Oh, so wow. first of all, it flips the typical power dynamic between provider and community member. And the med students get to, and it actually makes med students feel better because they know that they're not really like in control of things. <laughs> you know, yeah. they, they haven't like forgotten that, whereas we have, but they, they follow the community health workers and they learn basically how to do that work. And that's how they learn about the social determinants and they have conversations and, and then to hear, you know, about community health workers, you know, and watch them round in teams, you know, with, with mm-hmm. docs and nurses and social workers and MPs. It's awesome because they're doing exactly that. It's like, you know, Ms. So-and-so who we discharged last week, I visited her and like we planted her rose garden. Like, wouldn't you love to know that about somebody that you sent out the door? Or wouldn't you like to know that, hey, guess what? You know, you ordered the insulin wrong and they didn't get it. And can you fix it? Like transitions of care, moral injury, like there's, there's nothing that I really don't believe that there's nothing. I love it. I mean, how can you not be a medical student and be inspired when you're exposed to that story of your patient? Unless you're, you know, and and let's be honest, you know, we can, we can speak freely here. There are people whose mindset is not that expansive and that's not who they are. They're the technician or they're the, um, you know, it's almost a kind of a, a, a useful psychopathy where they just are so single-minded and this is what they want to do. They want this piece of the puzzle and that's great. We need them desperately. But like you said, hold up a mirror and find the best of us that then do this other work and have them teach the people who are going to go into those spaces and be the human element, the art of medicine. So you're talking about transforming medical education. You're tra- talking about transforming the payment model. You're talking about transforming chronic disease and acute disease management and transforming the fabric of society, going a long way towards relieving chronic generational racial and economic injustice, healing us, bringing us together, e pluribus unum, from many one. And also from one, we prism out to many. They're equivalent. It's like an equation that's balanced, but it's out of balance right now. We're just still split into the many, forgetting that we are also the one. So having all of this together, this is a practical, I can preach about this all day, like a sermon on the mount. It doesn't matter. You're actually doing something about it. And there was a time when I was too in my clinic and I miss that, but I also don't miss managing a clinic because that was hard. So the practicality of this. The practicality is, is, is my team lives and breathes the practicality. I, I, uh, I, you know, I, I'm all about, you know, what's the point of knowledge without action. My team is all about that as well. And look, I mean, I, I'm tired of hearing the familiar story of injustice. Like it needs a hero. Hmm. And, you know, this is, this is really one of the, if not the, um, only randomized controlled trial tested, um, social intervention that moves needles of cost, quality, and health within healthcare. And, and so we should be doing this. You know, there's not a lot of low-hanging fruit to address the problems that you just mentioned, but this is this is truly one of them. All right, so this is what we're gonna do because this is an action item now for me and my tribe of uh, healthcare people. We're gonna keep this conversation going, you yeah. and I. Um, and we're gonna get practical examples. We're gonna answer questions like, how do clinicians work with community health workers without either feeling threatened or dominating them. 
Yeah. Uh, and that dynamic. And then how do we pay for it more specifically, which we've talked a little bit about. We're going to dig into that. Some of the practicalities of how it would work in different populations, how it might work in a surgical practice. Would you have a community health worker to make sure that we're not dropping the ball and having post-op wound infections and things like that because we're not following up right? How can we then create payment models that that actually pay us for outcomes that matter to our patients? Because that would then, this would be a no-brainer. In a fee-for-service system, like you said, it's all how you design it. What's your goal? This makes no sense. But it makes perfect sense in a system where you're paid to actually do the right things for a patient. We had Vivian Lee on the show. She was talking about transforming healthcare. That's a component of it. Get the, get the people who are actually doing the work together, show bright spots like what you're doing, show them to the world. And that's my job as the you know sage archetype because I'm not an advocate. Can I make an admission to you? Sure. I'm, I'm so, and this is very embarrassing, but it's, it's something that now I, I've decided in my older years to be as honest and authentic with people, even in a public setting as I can. When, when I was at UCSF, every single person there did homeless clinic. It was like a rite of passage. And I was one of the few people who didn't do it. And it was because there was something about me that was not the advocate phenotype. I was either, I loved to teach and I loved to learn, and there was something about that clinic that it didn't draw me. I am not your community health worker, that's not right. me. And I had to learn to forgive myself for not having that aspect of my personality because there are other lines that I'm actually quite good at. And I think we can say that to our audience and say, you don't have to be the community health worker, but you do have to advocate to find that community health worker and do the stuff that you can't do or won't do so you can do you. Again, from the many, you know, the one and from the one, the many, you're a aspect. And, and you know why, as you're talking, I think that maybe some of us clinicians are worried about uh, having community health workers is that we have so little joy and love in our jobs. Hmm anyway, that we're like, now you're taking the best part, uh, a little last bit of love out of my job mm. and you're outsourcing that to somebody else. I just realized that. And actually it, it's the opposite of that because you, you get, there's so much more love, like the pie <laughs> grows actually, because then you're like, you're, you're, first of all, you're loving up on your colleague, you know, your community health worker colleagues, um, who are just like, awesome to work with. And, you know, they're telling you things that you didn't know about your patient and you're telling that, you know, I still have really deep relationships with my patients. When I work alongside community health workers, I tell them stuff that they didn't know about my patients. And mm. then together, you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's just an extension of, of all of what we're trying to achieve. So you, you, you hear more loving things um, and, and there's a lot more joy and like fun little bits of your relationship with your patient when you're actually working with community health workers. And, you know, we have science that shows that it makes patients love you more. Um, the CAP scores are, are not a reflection of, you know, asking people, what do you think about your community health worker? We already know they love their community health worker, but it, they doubled their uh, patient reported um, uh, ratings of their primary care provider. So in other words, if Maggie has a community health worker, she's twice as likely to love me. Oh, wow. <laughs> not anything different, you know? Wow, wow. So I think it, it really, it, it increases the love. I think this is a great way to wrap this up. You know, it actually reminds me of um, 
something Dr. Wes Ely, who's a wonderful ICU doc, came on my show. He spe- specializes in uh, ICU delirium and the delirium factory that's the ICU, the human aspects of ICU care and how we can use science to actually improve human condition and relationship. And he said, he, he mentioned the law of the gift when he said, you know, sometimes it's really hard to do these protocols and, you know, spontaneous breathing trials and spontaneous awakening trials when it's easier to keep someone sedated and tied down because you yeah. get through your shift. But the idea that you put that effort in, you, 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 you spend some time with your community health worker, you mentor them, they mentor you, you release a little of that ego attachment and control. And the gift that you give then is given back to you 12 fold in the very practical form of age caps and cap and Frescani scores, but in, in, right. in love and, and in meaning and in purpose and in connection. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's intangible, but it's more tangible than anything you can measure. So I think that's a wonderful way to, for me to say thank you, uh, Shreya. Uh, it's been a, it, this has been a wonderful journey for me personally, hearing you advocate for the advocates that are doing this. And um, it, it, I'm so glad that uh, we were able to connect. I'm looking forward to the next uh, episode. Any parting words for how we can activate our tribe to get them agitating about this? Yeah, I think that this is a time we have on our website, which is chw.upenn.edu, a call to action, <clears throat> which includes a letter to Congress and a letter to CMS. Um, it's all about um, sustainable funding for community health workers. So if I leave you with nothing else, um, you know, advocate. Um, this is the time because we're going to lose this window. And then I think the other is advocate within your local healthcare organizations. Um, and we are, you know, part of University of Pennsylvania. We are here to sort of help and provide, you know, um, any kind of assistance that we can to help you build or strengthen these community health worker programs and make sure that we're, we're getting this right. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And we'll put links to all that stuff. You can send them to me. We'll throw them in. And uh, ZPAC, here's the thing for you guys. Um, this is important. This is important. Like, I, you know, I don't just say that lightly, right? This is This is something that we can do together. People always ask me, how can I be a part of this change? It's stuff like this. Go to the links, learn more about it, teach others about it, advocate to our politicians and our policymakers and our administrators and our leaders. And if you're an administrator or a leader, listen. I See, normally you would have to convince me, Shreya, of this, but I have lived this myself in my clinic. I have seen this. It works, it works. It works for our most vulnerable patients at a time of turmoil and what feels like permanent apocalyptical disaster. This is a this is more than a ray of hope. It's a floodlight of hope where we can actually make it better in all the buckets that we care about as humans and as Americans and as citizens of the world. So that being said, I love you guys. Please leave a comment. Tell us what you're gonna do and we out. Peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. (laughs) And so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, It just really helps the algorithms to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, 
Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st- really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.